from the trenches. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to From the Trenches, real life in the accounting industry. My name is David Boyer from Change GPS. Join with me for live freedom mentoring, and this is an ultra special show. Join with us, Dom Calabretta from Mackay Goodwin, insolvency, restructures, liquidation, all the good stuff. Paul, this is uh, well, we're excited about the show. Thank you very much, David. Hello, listeners. Hello, all. Welcome. And this episode, we are absolutely honoured to be joined by McKay Goodwin. Dominic, how are you? G'day, guys. I'm well. Thank you for having me on the show. You're welcome. So, Dominic, tell us a little bit about... You're welcome. Well, you're welcome. Very very nice. Tell us a little bit about yourself uh, and your history in the industry. Yeah, no problem. So, yeah, I'm Dom Colabert from McKay Goodwin. I am... Um, the founding um, director of Mackay Goodwin, we're an insolvency restructuring firm. Uh, started a firm about five years ago, and we've grown pretty rapidly. Um, got voted in you know top 100 fast 100 orders types of awards, um, and we're seeing a lot of insolvencies these days. So you know a lot of volume, a lot of people losing money. Um, yeah, uh, I think you're underselling yourself. <laughs> You have quite a storied career. You've worked on some pretty big insolvencies over the last couple of decades, haven't you? Yes, yes. Uh, I've worked on quite a few large construction matters. Um, the ANSET matter, when that originally started quite a while ago, actually. Um, that I worked on an offshoot of that business. Um, worked on quite large global hedge funds. Um, and what's, right, the, what's the juiciest thing you've seen that you're allowed to talk about? Probably not allowed to talk about that. No, you're allowed to talk about <laughs> The tax office might come in. Uh... Oh, good deals or bad yeah, deals? Yeah, oh, bad deals, good deals. Um, in some cases, it's never a dull day. There's always something different that we're dealing with, always different types of personalities. Um, you know, a lot of people don't understand, but behind insolvencies there are people, families, children. So it could be quite an emotional, um, you know, profession and industry that we need to deal with quite a lot of our emotions at play. Have, have, what's the worst insult you've received that a creditor's meeting? Oh, that's Probably a hard one. <laughs> There's too many of them. Where do I start? <laughs> um, no, look, we always get. Usually, you know, we're treated as the messenger. You know, we, we, we go to a creditors meeting and creditors are angry. They've lost a lot of money and they uh, they do direct their anger towards us. So, unfortunately, a lot of times we are the messenger and I always say don't shoot the messenger. Um, as a business owner, well, let's put your, put your business owner hat on at the moment. You've had some... How many staff do you have in five years? Between 45 and 50. It's a decent firm. Yeah. And it's in a part of our sector. It's not quite the accounting profession, but it's kind of a, sits on the side of it a little bit. Um, you've had, like, massive consolidation of the big firms. So barely any ferries don't exist anymore. Yep. PPB? Yep. Correct. Yeah, yeah, they've all been bought out by the uh, big four. So you're just waiting for your payday? I'd, I'd like to. <laughs> so if anyone's listening for a big four, I'm, I'm for sale. <laughs> so, so what's, as, as you said, you've been rapid growth. The insolvency does seem, it, because it's almost disappointing that insolvency is up because that means that the businesses are down, I suppose. So what what are you seeing in terms of, sectors and just how difficult it is out there at the moment for, for businesses? It's very difficult. I think especially in the last few months, we've seen a lot of big retail chains um, going to insolvency restaurants. I, I saw to this day, don't, un, don't know how a restaurateur can make money running a restaurant in Australia, especially 
in the big cities like Sydney or Melbourne. I just can't comprehend how anyone could make a profit running a restaurant. And that's why we see all the time big restaurants, you know, failing. And what are the drivers? There's lots of articles around about about what's driving restaurants into the ground. Um, wage, uh, wage rates and complexity clearly gets a, a lot of information. Uh, Uber Eats, high rent. Um, what are you seeing? Is there a, is there a weighting to those three? Is there is there others? I think all three combined. Um, so obviously the high rent. Um, there's you know property markets not changing. Landlords aren't reducing their rent. Um, they have commitments to banks. So you know their mortgage repayments are still they stay the same. So then they're not you know passing on any discounts to the uh, restaurateurs or the uh, you know the leaseholders. Um, is, is that fair? Because. It seems to me like we expect the entrepreneur, the business owner, to copy the ebb and flow of ups and downs and to build up a balance sheet that can deal with the down, but the property owner just gets to get a static, nut. we're not budging, it doesn't matter what, here's what it is, more than happy to put it up when it's good, but, but doesn't have to rely on their retained earnings and balance sheet to fund that debt piece when things are going bad. Yeah, exactly. And, that, and the problem is, you know, a lot of times people don't understand, but the land landowner, the, the owner of a property, has commitments to a bank and he has to keep those repayments. But those, but those commitments are going down, right? Like we're, we're, we're seeing yeah. interest rates coming down and down and down. You know, whereas wage rates and, and, and rent actually goes up by CPI, it's almost like the interest rates are coming down with CPI each year. That less P&I around now, though. Oh, sorry, less interest only around now. Most of the deals are P&I. And especially a lot of residential interest rates, yes, but commercial interest rates, overdrafts, bank, you know, bank loans that are subject to business, they're still pretty high these days. Have you... One of the things... That, an emerging thing that we've been very critical on this show of is the unregulated fintech lenders. Is there a correlation between taking on fintech-type loans at these... effective interest rates that are barely disclosed and insolvency. Are you seeing deals come through that have been, that have that type of debt? Uh, Yeah, yes. Yeah, I mean, usually they're regarded as lenders of last resort. But they don't market like that. They market like they're the sexiest, greatest partner of all time. Yeah, and they also... First stop. Mm -hmm. And they also market, you know, we don't need guarantees, we don't need security, but they don't disclose the interest rates that they're taking. Um, Yeah, we're seeing a lot of it. Unfortunately, the consumer, um, it's easy access to money. It's very, nearly impossible getting a loan from a bank these days, so they, they need to resort to other types of uh, financing mechanisms. Is there, is there a higher rate of default rates for businesses who have those sort of loans than not? Uh, there would be. Um, we've, we, we meet a lot of them, and their, their, their philosophy is if they can collect 80% of their debt and they write off 20%, they're still on top. So, so it gives you an idea how much money they're making. I, yeah, no, I mean, it, it can't, I mean, it can't all be put at the foot of fintech, clearly, because being a lender of last resort, it generally means that they are the last horse at the trough in terms of it. they're already on the way down, whether or not that was the reason they, they went. You know, you probably can't blame them. Coming back to a little bit about the retail sector that you mentioned, you know, again, what do you see are the drivers that that are really hurting, you know, particularly that sector? And you look at someone like JB Hi-Fi that is just, you know, seems to be going from strength to strength in what is otherwise a, a really troubling market. You know, what are you seeing as the, the really drivers, uh, the negative drivers of, of the retail sector? So the, the most obvious is the online. Um, online business has taken away a lot of retail foot traffic, 
people don't don't go to shopping centres anymore. They jump online. But regarding JB Hi-Fi in particular, they're going well. It's just their model. Their overheads are a lot lower than, let's say, David Jones. Um, and they also sell a lot more. So it's really basic, you know, accounting. Sell more and uh, lower expenses. And therefore, their model is allowing them to, you know, um, sustain a tough market condition. Whereas a lot of other retailers are really struggling um, with the online business. A lot of online um, you know, businesses out there taking away foot traffic and therefore making it very hard. Coronavirus has hit supply chains pretty badly in Australia. A friend of mine's um, involved in one of the large retailers in the senior leadership team there. And so they've got a war room for what happens if they can't get winter stock. They're actually war rooming how this is going to play out. It's a serious risk for them. Our mind's on the smaller guys. So you sort of almost credit some of the online retailers for taking revenue away from traditional retail. Those business models, a huge part of their efficiency is dropshipping direct out of China. Um, do you think they're going to be in a bit of trouble? Are you expecting to see a few calls from those guys? Oh, definitely. We're already getting a few inquiries um, regarding you know, not being able to get stock for the upcoming season, for the winter season. Um, the coronavirus has hit a lot of businesses and I think it's going to get worse. I have a, a client who's a major um, exporter of meat and his forward orders for the next six months have been cancelled and that's going to have massive ramifications for his business. Um, I mean, he's prepared for six months' worth of um, you know, meat being exported to China and they've stopped taking orders. Um, there's quite a lot of uh, tourism. The education sector um, is getting hurt by the coronavirus. Manufacturers that do rely on parts from China can't continue their manufacturing process. Yet the retail sector, it's going to have quite a big impact. What do you think should be done to protect retailers specifically? I think retailers need to maybe source other, um, other you know, venue avenues to obtain their products. Might not be as cheap, but at least they're going to have products rather than having no product to sell. So China isn't the only place to get you know, a lot of the products. It could be a lot more expensive, but they need to look at alternative sources of, um, of ordering supplies. Including local. Local, exactly. This is a perfect opportunity, you know. It's a good time to be a local manufacturer for the first time in 30 years. Definitely, you're coming off a pretty low price point, though. Especially, unfortunately, if it's coming out of... Especially from the toilet paper business. Do you know all our toilet paper's locally manufactured? <laughs> yes. No, I know. We just covered that last Unreal. night. I, I can't believe it. Uh, I can't believe it. Years. Unreal. It is. Let's talk a little bit about the role of the accountant. Obviously, you deal a lot with um, accounts. That would be a a great referral source for you. What is it? Better be. We want them to come back on the show. (laughs) What is it when an accountant's sitting there looking at a set of financials with a client, thinking about a client? What? What triggers? What should they be looking at? There's uh, some obvious signs of um, insolvency or you know, companies struggling. Non-payment of tax is the obvious one. Um, the accountants are always the gatekeepers of the tax office and the client. And you know, having to consistently ask for payment repayment plans and you know, outstanding basses, outstanding lodgements. I think that's a, you know, a, a telltale sign of um, a struggling business. I think one of the biggest challenges that accountants have today is clients, um, in, the, you know, in the old days, clients used to get an accountant and say, I'm in trouble, what do I do? A lot of times these days people get on Google and self-diagnose their problems. Uh-huh. And I think uh, the landscape has changed a bit. Accountants aren't 
um, the first point of call as they used to be. I think now, like Dr. Google for, you know, you've got something on, on your skin, you get on Google and you try and self-diagnose yourself. Ah, next you know you've got cancer. Yeah, and people are trying to do the same thing for their oh, yeah. business problems. Um, and that's why accountants aren't as, you know, on the forefront of a client's financial problems. That should be news to you, Paul. You think that accountants are very proactive in the first point of call. I think so. We, we do know when the ATO debt creeps up. We know when the lodgements when the lodgements get out a little bit. I suppose there's always someone. <laughs> we came through the credit crunch, and, and we've often said on the show that the, the ATO were the only ones lending um, to a point. You know, and again, in terms of a, any business can sustain a responsible, for want of a better word, debt on their books. Mm-hmm. It's it's what it's what else. You know, is, is there anything that you see, be it practically or legally, that, that is almost a, a, a point of no return, like just having a something outstanding or an ATO debt, you know, but isn't necessarily. I, just before you, I, I, can I just extend that last question a little bit more? Because I've never heard anyone say that small business owners are self-diagnosing online. So that, that's a very new piece of information to me. And certainly accountants like to think that they're the only point of call, where there's all this data that we have a trusted advisor and, and we understand that role. Is that a problem? Like, that seems like a major problem that people would rather Google. I don't even know what that's search for. I, don't, I can't even imagine what that's search for. But not but friend, friends and family and, and mates down the pub have always been. This is Google. Oh, like, this is different. But that's like, no. When, when a business is failing, I don't think they go to friends and family. It's, it's, no, it's, it's too proud. Yeah. You don't want to. Yeah. And it's funny. It's um, we've we've done statistics on search engines, and it's time of night and day when they do most of the search. It's usually late at night. They're probably stressing about not paying their bills. It's amazing. They get on Google and you know they're probably not sleeping, and they're googling you know tax problem, tax debt, you know bankruptcy. They're the key words that people are searching. Um, and then for, and then once they obtain that information, they'll make their own assessment of what to do rather than calling the accountant. A lot of times, you know, we get clients and they override the accountant and we say, why didn't you talk to the accountant? Well, he's one of my creditors because usually the last people that get paid is a I got that. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> so, yeah, they say usually the last person they pay is the accountant and the tax office. So they, they're scared to call the accountant and say, hey, I've got no more money. Well, it's a terrible situation. So, it's like a real cash twenty. So Leading on from that a bit, you know, clearly like every industry has their, their parts of it that are, that are darker than others. You know, what's your take on, on those people in, in the insolvency industry that, that do put those ads on late at night and that, that really is just a, Seems quick, like a quick pathway to, to phoenixing or to, um, you know, and they call themselves restructure, but it's just slash and nick and roll over. Yep. You know, I guess, what's your view on that part of the industry? You know, ASIC have started, but kind of there's, there's probably still a lot more there. You know, what's your take on, on that part of the industry? I think it still needs a lot of cleaning up. Um, I always say I don't understand how, you know, you need you have an electrician coming over to your house and the electrician needs to be qualified. Your financial planner needs to have a financial planning licence. You know, any industry out there that, you know, re- involves, you know, all your money or your savings or your financial situation, you need a licence, a lawyer needs a practising certificate, a doctor needs a certificate. I don't understand how they've allowed practitioners, these pre-insolvency advisors, to advise without any qualification. But you do have, you've got you've got a separate, you have to be a registered insolvency professional. Yeah, so we, we have, insolvency firms have registered liquidators and we're 
registered with ASIC. However, a lot of these pre-insolvency advisors in the tax office in ASIC have been putting a lot of um, focus on it lately. Um, has um, has has put pressure on you know on the industry because you know, so, so is the regulatory mechanism in place and just not administered or so so to be a pre insolvency advisor you do not need any qualification nor any licensing wow so, it's like thought leadership <laughs> yes 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 David exactly and it's actually funny you usually I've spent a lot of pre insolvency advisors and their pitch to to clients is I've done I've walked the walked and a lot of them are just Bankrupts. They've gone through the process and then they try and pass on. Their <laughs> at money. least they've got experience. Yeah, like, like <laughs> that takes away some of our, our ammunition against them. At least they, they kind of know what they know what they're talking about. Um, in in that, I'm, I touched on Phoenix. Like, what is your? Do you? Is there a definition? I mean, I, I think we know what it is, but is there sort of a, a very succinct no. definition? But, and and but what's, it's, not, it's not defined in the Corpse Act, is it? No, that's the hardest part. There's no real legal definition. We know the concept. It's of the what vibe. It is. It's Marbo. That's right. Yeah. It's that. I mean, they try. It's, it's dinners and soccer over here, and everybody <laughs> else is over there. That's what it is. Yeah, that's, that's been the hardest challenge. There's no. I mean, I, I there's been no case of a liquidator being successful against a company or director for a Phoenix activity. I mean, there's voidable really? transactions. Yeah, but there's voidable transactions, uncommercial transactions. You know, the Corporations Act has different ways to get money back. For the creditors, but not Phoenix. You know? I was saying, like, you know, the commercial transaction thing, and I've been involved in restructures in the past, it's very, it's a low standard of bar to call something commercial because if a company's failing, it arguably has no value. So anything better than nothing is arguably commercial yep. for what's in it. Yeah, exactly. And that's a, the hardest test is to try and determine. You know what? Uh, it's value of business. Yeah, you know, what, what should this business be worth? It was losing money for two years. You know, it should have been worth X, Y, Z. That's the hardest part. It's a hard test to you know try and prove. Number. Oh, you go, Dave. You get five in a row. I can have one. Uh, ASIC. We, we just touched quickly on, on ASIC and regulators. It certainly feels like at the bigger end of town, post Royal Commission and post extra funding in the last federal budget is probably the main reason that the, the tiger's got its sharpened teeth back. Uh, but is that playing down in smaller businesses as, as well in the SME space? I am seeing a lot of activity from ASIC in the smaller business, um, especially with repeat directors having failed companies. I'm seeing a bit of um, action from ASIC. So they are now taking a look in that space. And you know, yeah, as you said, you know, there's a, a concept, the thought that ASIC only focuses on, on the big fish and the big whales. I think they're focusing on now the SMEs and it's in particular repeat directors or, you know, people that are involved in, you know, killing a company and then setting up a new company, the phoenixing sort of uh, arrangement. So, yeah, there's definitely a lot of focus in that. The ATO, they're working together. Also, they're talking between each other. So um, there's been quite a few high-profile cases of late and that's been with uh, collaboration between the tax office and ASIC working together. Oh, it's good to hear the government works for. Yeah, certainly they need to. You know, I, I clearly nice, think yeah. there is just without without a proper rule. Um, I had a thought years ago. I think we put it on the show, David. That I'm just surprised that insolvency doesn't say, well, what were you doing the day before the company? Six months before, you got to say what you were doing. Sign a stat deck. Mm-hmm. What was the role you were doing, and where were you deriving your income? Six months later, you go, where are you driving your income now? Because it's a stat deck, it's a legal document. And you basically just go, like, I don't care about the structures. We don't, but you're actually telling us 
because everyone has to get their income. Mm. And if you lie on a stat deck, you, you're, you're next on it. Well, that's interesting. You know, I'll, I'll, if we can sort of dive into a particular part of the segment now, the construction sector, because you could be doing exactly the same thing in construction again and, and feeding your life in, in that space. But the cause for insolvency is very different. Like the, the, you know, we were talking before, it's like one bad project. Well, you're still a builder. Yeah, I mean, I think building companies have, uh, they are the toughest to restructure and I think the laws are a bit too tough in that aspect. So, you know, in all states, if you are a builder and you enter into insolvency, so you put the country to voluntary administration, your license automatically cancels. Now, I just don't understand how people can expect a business to keep surviving or, you know, try and salvage any value if they're automatically suspended. It's, it's I, I know, having like you're driving a car and, you know, your brakes stop working and then you say, hey, guess what? I'm going to take out a steering wheel. So you've got no chance of <laughs> saving yourself. It's the same as a building company. I think they need to look at that because, you know, directors, a lot of directors come to me and they say, I'm a builder and I've got a license. And I say, well, if you do go into voluntary administration, your license is going to go. And they then all of a sudden have a mindset of, well, if I'm going to go down, I'm going to make it worth it. So it's just not working. Uh, captain of the ship. Yeah, captain of the ship. So then next thing you know, it, they're not paying anyone. They're, they're taking money for themselves. So I think being too tough on, on that aspect isn't working. There's got to be a middle ground. Uh, one of the questions I had, and you touched on it there, about, about I suppose the different way people go, th- go through an insolvency. What are you seeing on the on the trade through or recover versus sell assets, sell what you can and sort of get get back a little bit. You know, you probably never get 100 cents of the dollar, but get back versus just shut the door, um, insolvency, get rid of it. You know, is there a waiting? What do you see about about the, the different, the three of them and, and which ones are more popular or? What you saying? It all depends on the business. If it's a, it's a solid business and it's just because of bad management or a legacy problem, selling that business is probably the best outcome for creditors rather than shutting the doors. However, some businesses just aren't going to make money and no matter what you do, who you sell it to, it's going to keep losing money. They're the ones that we have to say, look, we're not going to sell it. Uh, there's been a recent one, Jeans West. Um, that was a successful sale after the administration um, and that was a perfect example of a business with a solid, you know, um, you know, foundation that the administrators decided to sell it. However, we sometimes see a business or, a, you know, and we just say there's no chance, you're going to have to shut the doors. Well, let's expand on this a little bit because this, this is the purity of the corpse law, the way it was meant to be, and the purity of, of what, what um, voluntary administration should be. Correct me if I'm wrong. The theory is that if times are tough, you can enter a stage of administration to renegotiate major contracts, to renegotiate debt arrangements um, and, and try to reposition your base, your balance sheet, so that the foundational problem-making part of the business works. More often than not, I'll put this on you, I see a lot of these things can't happen because the cost of paying the liquidator or the administrator is too high. And so it can't even get to the starting the starting block. Um, so there's two questions part of that is how do you how, do, how does that happen? Like what are you doing? situation because you're in a high-risk position. You're responsible for all the liabilities once it goes in um, and should be rewarded for that. It should be paid for it. Um, but the second one is, yeah, how? what is the investor market like for restructured assets? Yeah, I mean, 
obviously, depending on the size of a business, sometimes we say you're just too small for voluntary administration and the costs are going to absorb any benefit in, in doing what you want to do, so restructure. Uh, it just depends on the asset. You know, you could have a, a company with a lot of yellow goods or vehicles or um, physical assets yeah. and, you, you know, you can determine the value. It's scrap value, but you still know determined value. Or you've got a business where you just don't know what value you're going to get. It might be some goodwill, some IP, where you're just going to have to put the market to put it to market and test the market. So it all depends on what what is in front of us, and then we can make a decision on your best way forward is a voluntary administration. The safe harbour laws. I don't think that's really worked, but safe harbour laws have been passed, and also to overcome what you just said. What, what are the safe yeah, so safe harbour laws are basically a director, if he is of a view that he's maybe trading insolvent or insolvent, he can enter into safe harbour provisions, which is protection, and therefore, by if they're entering into a safe harbour protection, they are not going to be sued for insolvent trading moving forward. The whole, I think the whole purpose of that law was to avoid, you know, the phoenixing and, and to let directors be bold in their restructure, but at the same time have a a uh, corporate protection uh, through the safe harbour provisions. Unfortunately, the cost of a safe harbour restructure is so expensive that the SME is not even using it anymore. So it's only for the bigger guys. So that sort of hasn't worked, and there's quite a lot of material online from a lot of insolvency firms saying it's just not working. The coming back to the the, the businesses that you're seeing, you know, you, we hear a lot about the big ones. We hear a lot about the, the big names and the, the 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 big stories. What are you seeing about the other supporting businesses, the um, areas that hang hang off those bigger businesses, the supply chains, the the small things? What do you see as the flow-on effect? And do you actually see sort of more of those type businesses folding because of up-the-line things? Yeah, definitely. We uh, A lot of times uh, we've had the big guys fall. So we've had the meeting of creditors for the big construction companies and all the sub- subcontractors come because they're creditors and actually say, can I talk to you after the meeting? Because uh, it, it, there's an yeah. on-flow effect. So, you know, and they were dependent, I mean, I had one uh, a large plumbing group and a subcontractor worked just on this project for the last six months. So it was, his, it was his wages for the past six months. And not getting paid hurt him. So he had to go bankrupt. So there's definitely... And I think in your Koshi business uh, article, the link will be in the show notes, uh, you had something about diversifying income too. Exactly. homework. Well done, yeah. Thanks. I have, you did three minutes before the show. Seven and a half. I have two uh, on-the-spot questions to finish off with. One is, uh, what would be your one piece of advice for people who are coming to see you, as in that their company's unfortunately heading that that way? What would you want them to have to know or to have done? First of all, um, uh, act early. The, the earlier you act, so as soon as you see a hint of a problem, start preparing. Start you know, taking advice and start preparing for it, get your books in order. One of the biggest problems we see is uh, people, once they start falling behind, they it's sort of a head in the sand syndrome and the problem just gets bigger and bigger. So as soon as you see an indication of a problem, don't don't ignore it, um, you know, work on it because if, you, if you're pragmatic and have a practical approach towards it, there's a prob- probably a solution to it and therefore you, you, you might actually come, come out of it on top. Very good practical advice. The last, the last one before David wraps up. 
What is the one piece of advice that you would want to give people trying to avoid coming and seeing you? Uh, talk to your accountants. So your accountants, especially the good accountants, um, are, uh, I always say, the gatekeepers of a good, solid business, and they know, you know how, to, how to help you. So talk to your accountant, talk to your advisors. Uh, you know, business owners are very good at their trade. You know, you could have a plumber who's an amazing plumber, but he's a bad, you know, doesn't know how to run his books, doesn't understand accounting. And for him to try and understand that process, it, it, it just doesn't work. So, you know, use your advisors for help. Uh, thank you very much for coming in, Don. Thank you, Paul. We're going to wrap up. Now, listeners, if you have clients you think are in trouble, uh, the best way to get in touch, but you guys offer free consultation. Yes. What's, is that like confession? It must be. Because, like, <laughs> it must be. It'd like be a, It'd big, be a little deal. bit. It would be a big deal. Like, for the business owner, they do it away, maybe in the garden so the wife can't hear the conversation. Yep. Uh, yep. What's involved in a free consultation? Just tell us what your problems are. They're all confidential. We'll give you some very general, generic advice, and then you can sort of decide the best way forward. Mackay Goodwin operates in all major cities in Australia. Head to the website, mackaygoodwin.com.au or call 1-300-750-599. Anything else, Paul? No, thank you for joining us. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thanks again for listening to an episode of From the Trenches. David and I love to hear from listeners, so you can reach out if you've got feedback or story ideas, get in touch. I can be reached on Twitter at PaulMeissner underscore or on LinkedIn, Paul Meissner. I'm on Twitter at David Boyar, B-O-Y-A-R, on LinkedIn, David Boyar. From the Trenches. 